All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. So here's an interesting thought exercise. What does the rhetoric and a lot of the floor speeches that we see coming out of the Democrats on the floor of the Virginia House of Delegates have to do with the Canadian truckers situation and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau? We're going to talk about that and more on this episode of Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Now, when you first consider some of the floor speeches, again, coming out here on the, from Democrats, Virginia um, House of Delegates, and you consider what's going on with the truckers up in Canada, you might think these, are, you know, these things couldn't be farther apart. What do they have to do with one another? But I want to I wanna draw a line here. And I'm not suggesting that anything Democrats have done in Virginia have anything to do with what's going on up in, in Canada right now. That's not the point. The point is the rhetoric that is so commonly used. So... At the beginning of session, there was a big dust up between me and Delegate Scott, where Delegate Scott essentially challenged everything from, uh, you know, the, the intentions to the Christianity of Governor Yunkin, because Governor Yunkin was trying to make some promises or trying to make some changes that he promised on the campaign trail with respect to some of the things that were being taught in our schools, with respect to things like mask mandates, and the government, you know, really just bearing down on parents, on students, on businesses with uh, mandates, with curriculum, with things that a lot of parents consider to be indoctrination. And that was all considered to be just beyond the pale as far as Democrats were concerned. They just couldn't be that he was doing something so horrendous as saying that maybe parents should choose whether or not their kids wore a mask in school or suggesting that you know, CRT-influenced curriculums or teaching requirements should not uh, be a part of our public school system, right? So they just couldn't stand that. And I got up and I said, look, one of the biggest problems I have right now is that every time we tend to disagree with the left, we get treated to this idea that because we have a policy disagreement, that therefore we are bad people, right? We're bigots, we're racist, we're sexist, we're homophobes, whatever it is, right? The moment we don't agree with them on a particular policy, we're bad people. It's not that we just have a different way to actually address the problem. And I, I thought, you know, maybe ridiculously, I thought that by pointing that out, it would cause them to rethink some of their rhetoric. And for some of my Democratic colleagues, Maybe it has, right? Some of their arguments that they've been used have actually been focused more on policy as opposed to questioning all of our intentions the moment we disagree. All right, but for many of them, that has not been the case. Once again, if, if you don't agree with doubling the minimum wage uh, you know, over a couple of years, then you don't care about workers. If you don't want you know, massive forced unionization, then you don't care about laborers, right? You know, like just go on and on and on. If you don't want, um, you know, if you don't want to be pushing policies, which many people consider to be somewhat racist or sexist, well, then now you, you don't care about public education or teachers. And the reason why I point this out, and the reason why I make this connection to the truckers right now in Ottawa, is because there is a reason why you use that kind of rhetoric. 
Now, the more benign reason is people just think it works, right? If I, if I say that you're a bad person, you'll feel bad about your policy position and maybe you'll change your mind, right? It, it's kind of a, um, I mean, a very superficial, I think, bad argumentation. In the laws of logic, we call it an ad hominem, ad hominem attack where you attack the person instead of the policy or the argument. But essentially, it, it does have political utility, right? A lot of Democrats have won a lot of elections by convincing their constituents that the other side were just mean, horrible, awful people. And that was the only way that it could explain why they didn't like Democrat policies, all right? But obviously, that's not the case, all right? The second reason why you would do this, beyond just kind of like the, the like political utility to win a particular election, is because it creates an atmosphere for when the government has to, or I shouldn't say has to, but when the government wants to use violence in order to compel you to do what they want, they can simply make it an issue or they can make it a, a question, not of disagreement on policy, but rather the forces of good combating the forces of evil, right? So where's the parallel with Canada? Well, first of all, if you look at what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was saying about the Canadian truckers several months ago, he was lauding them as heroes and they were helping the Canadian economy to continue to you know, keep on trucking in the midst of COVID when people obviously still needed to get the various goods and services they required in order to live their lives, even under the midst of various COVID mandates and things of that nature. But then all of a sudden, when a lot of people within Canada have just gotten sick of the mandates, of the rules, of the restrictions, when they've gotten tired of the police showing up to their places of worship and shutting them down because of restrictions that to many people at this point seem arbitrary, right? It doesn't seem like anyone's trying to protect us from a pandemic that's gonna kill everybody. No, at this point, it just feels like the government has fallen in love with all these emergency powers that they've granted to themselves and they don't wanna give them up. And you see a lot of Democrats talking about this is, a, this is an opportunity to remake the economy and to remake society, right? They see the crisis as an excuse to be able to use overwhelming government power to compel people to live the way that certain politicians think you should. And people have gotten tired of it. Now, one of the things that I think is different about what's going on in Canada right now Right? Because a lot of people have been fed up. Some people were fed up from the beginning. They thought that what the government was doing was heavy-handed, that it wasn't going to produce the sort of results that we were being promised for what we were being forced to give up as a result. Right? There, there was a lot of frustration over that. There was a lot of different ways that people were resisting that, whether or not they were you know, going to work anyways or going out or maybe not wearing a mask or basically pushing the issue or forcing the government to really decide how badly do you want to enforce these mandates. In the United States, we have a fairly strong written constitution. We have separation of powers. We have clear distinctions with respect to authority between local, state, and federal law. But you go up to a place like Canada, and the same separation of powers, the same constitutional protections for everything from freedom of speech to the right to assemble and protest, et cetera, it's not quite the same. Like a lot of people have this assumption that the Bill of Rights we have in the United States is largely been replicated in most Western democracies, but that is not the case, and we're seeing that firsthand in places like Canada right now. But if you look at the rhetoric coming from the left, and keep in mind, they actually had a member of Canadian Parliament stand up and say that honk honk is synonymous with Heil Hitler. Now, nobody in their right mind thinks that it's accurate. I mean, maybe she's, maybe she's just crazy. I don't know, it's entirely possible. But let's presume for a second that she either really believes that, which again, I think would be somewhat insane, or 
she sees the political utility in making that sort of connection, even if the evidence doesn't back it up, because she knows what's about to happen, right? Because these comments were being made at a time when the truckers had actually conceded to a lot of what the government was asking for, right? They asked the truckers to stop blocking a bridge. They stopped. They asked truckers to stop honking their horns throughout the hours of the night. They stopped. But they were still engaging in a peaceful protest. Certainly peaceful compared to what we saw in the United States over the uh, couple summers ago when cities were burning down, where people were setting up like autonomous zones in Portland and in Seattle, right? So it was, it was much more peaceful compared to anything that we were seeing in the United States that the left was getting up and championing and, and celebrating and actually setting up funds to help people get out of jail when they were arrested for actually damaging property, right? Or stealing property. We're not talking about a sit-in in front of a company or, or, a, or a government building. We're talking about people that were actually setting things on fire and people like Kamala Harris, the vice president, was setting up funds to be able to contribute to their defense when they eventually went to court, right? So nothing that bad was taking place in Ottawa, and yet Trudeau decided to implement certain emergency powers which are supposed to be reserved for things like military invasion or like an, a legitimate insurrection where civil war is taking place in the country. Now, clearly that wasn't taking place, so under what authority did Trudeau do this? Well because he had it. And this is one of the big issues that a lot of us have with this idea of emergency powers. All of us can imagine a certain scenario where the government might have to take certain measures in order to protect against an invading force or, or a legitimate ins violent insurrection within their own country. But when you're essentially taking something like this, which may be heavily inconvenient, right, but not violent, and you're using the same sort of powers that are supposed to be reserved for one thing in order to achieve your objective, you have to find a way to justify that in the minds of the people. And one of the ways that you do that is by demonizing the people that are protesting. Now, again, I don't mean demonization in the sense that you disagree or you think they're idiots or you think they're stupid or whatever else it might be. I mean when you actually compare honk honk to Heil Hitler you are probably engaging in a sort of rhetoric, not because you believe that the truckers in Ottawa are a genuine threat of white supremacy and, the, and a reemergence of Nazism in Canada. No, you're using that comparison because when the government decides to use a, a bill that practically gives them the same sort of authority that you would see under martial law, you are trying to prepare a certain sector of your own population to be perfectly comfortable with the police engaging in tactics that the left usually think are completely beyond the pale. Excessive, violent, abusive, oppressive. But when it's in service to a left-wing objective, all of a sudden it becomes noble, it becomes necessary. It becomes a regular act that you need to engage in because of an emergency for the good of society. And that is one of the things, that is one of the reasons why I push so back on the sort of rhetoric I see, is because when you begin to otherize people, when you, when you begin to make connections between those people and horrible, racist, bigoted, oppressive movements throughout history, I don't just see hyperbole, right? I don't just see excessive rhetoric. What I see is politicians prepping the citizenry to be prepared for what happens next and that's the sort of violent crackdowns you saw taking place in Ottawa. 
And the idea is, is that, well, it took place in Ottawa in part because they don't have the same protections for civil liberties that we appreciate here in the United States. But one of the things you need to be careful on, and we actually spoke about this in a Y Minute we did talking about freedom of speech, is that the moment you allow the government to essentially declare that someone that opposes them, even when they're doing so peacefully, even when there's no indication that they have any real intention or desire to overthrow the government, to engage in violence, that there's no bigoted motivations behind their actions, that they simply want to be left alone or return to a certain degree of normalcy that all of us would have recognized a mere 24 months ago. The moment you see politicians engaging in rhetoric in order to justify the use of violent action against them, that's when you need to be concerned. Because here's the bottom line. As much as I love our Constitution, as much as I love the limitations that we put on power, political power and government power within this country, the only reason those documents have any validity whatsoever, the only reason why they provide any sort of pause on government power and action is because they know people believe in them. And one of the reasons why they don't get away with that in the United States is because in the United States, people also have the means to be able to defend themselves and resist if it comes to a point where the government starts to use violence against them, if they start to use emergency powers to completely subvert civil liberties in order to oppress people or to force them to comply. And what was so fascinating about watching what happened in Canada, which is considered right, a classically liberal state, a state which values civil liberties, which values property rights, which values free markets, at least on some level, was how quickly they went from you know, saying that this was a, a bad protest or telling them to cease and desist to we're actually going to use the full force of the state to not only use violence in order to remove you, right, but to also do things like freeze your bank account, to arrest you, to hold you without bail, to come in and completely destroy your business or your livelihood. Right? That's the measure that they were willing to go to. For what? Right now, some people will say, and a lot of people on the left will say, because it turns out that over 60% of Democrats in the United States favor what Justin Trudeau was doing in Ottawa. So if you don't believe it can happen in the United States, you got your head in the sand, bottom line. But the real question we have to ask ourselves is, why did they use these emergency powers? What was the justification for that? Because again, the truckers had actually conceded to a lot of what the government was asking them to do. Ultimately, the justification was this. You had truckers that were messing up the supply chain, right? They were blocking certain roads. They were being irritating to the government by honking their horns. And that was used as justification in order to use the violent force. Now keep in mind, why were the truckers there in the first place? Were they trying to overthrow the government? Were they trying to engage in violence? Were they threatening to burn down Ottawa? Were they looting stores? No, they weren't doing any of that. They were upset about the mandates and the restrictions that Trudeau's government keeps imposing on the very people that they acknowledge they are relying upon to keep their economy going. So this was not just a simple case of we're, we're, we've got some unruly protesters and we're going to deal with that. This was people that were protesting against mandates that most of the world is starting to think twice about. Most of the world is starting to actually roll back at this point. So the government could have taken a different course of action. The government could have said, all right, look, we are considering rolling back some of these mandates, right? And we want to negotiate with the citizenry in order to make sure that that is done. Right, your voices have been heard. They could have done that, but no, 
their, their, their knee-jerk reaction was to resort to force because they wanted to demonstrate to the protesters who was really in charge. And for anybody that thinks that the left is squeamish about violence or that the left, for instance, doesn't like guns, what you need to understand is that's not true. That's not even true historically. The left is very comfortable with violence if it's being executed on behalf of their policy objectives. The left doesn't have a problem with guns. They want the cops to have guns. They want the military to have guns. In fact, they want all the institutions that they have a lot of control over to be well-armed and capable of carrying out their policies, whether you like it or not. No, what they're uncomfortable with is your ability to be able to defend yourself. And that's what this entire debate has been about. It's not just about wearing a mask. It's not just about what shows up in your, in your kids' schools. It's not just about whether or not the government can come down and say, you know what, we're going to leave all the alcohol, government-run ABC stores open, but we're going to shut down your church. We're going to let Walmart stay open, but then we're going to shut down your mom and pop. It's not just about the arbitrary application of power. It's about the real concern that once government gets a taste for that kind of power, they have a real hard time relinquishing it. And that's what you're seeing going on in Canada right now. And again, this should be a warning to all of us because we went from 15 days to slow the spread to the government will freeze your bank account if you do not comply pretty quickly. And we're not talking about the bubonic plague here, right? We're not talking about one third of the population being wiped out as a result of a disease. We're talking about a global pandemic that was very serious, that obviously, a lot of people died as a result of, like nobody questioned on whether or not significant action needed to be taken in order to combat this. But as new variants came out that weren't as bad, as vaccines became available, as natural immunity blunted the overall danger associated with COVID, free people had a reasonable ex expectation that we were gonna move some of these mandates, that we were gonna move some of these rules, that we were gonna move back to a certain degree of normalcy, and yet we are being told whether it's up in Canada that will freeze your bank accounts if you don't comply or will shut down your church, or just here in the United States, that if you don't force your child to wear a mask in a school, that's tantamount to murder, right? The rhetoric is not just about winning elections. The rhetoric is about preparing the population in order to be able to stomach a level of government control and violence that free people never, under any other circumstance, would stomach. And that's the concerning part because They've now demonstrated on a number of levels, and you see it in different states, but you're really seeing it in Ottawa right now, that the comfort level that the left has with violence, if it means getting what they want, is far higher than I think anybody assumed. But the only way that you can get there is you have to convince a significant portion of the population that the people that you're going after are bad people. Not people with a different policy perspective, not people with a different opinion, they're bad, they're evil. They have it coming. And that's the purpose of some of the rhetoric that you've been seeing, and that is why it is so dangerous. And what makes it so frustrating for a lot of us is that the moment a conservative gets up and says anything remotely hyperbolic, the left is always comparing it to fascism. Well, okay, I've got a question. What's more fascist? People protesting to keep their Second Amendment rights, people protesting for you know, their kids to not be indoctrinated within their public schools at a school board meeting, or the government coming in and using force and violence to shut down your bank accounts, arrest people, and violently shut down protests. What's more fascist? When you, when you think of fascism, do you think of a concerned parent at a school board? 
Do, do you think of a frustrated parent that no longer wants their kids that have you know, a, a speech learning disability to have to go into a school with a mask and not be able to properly learn? Do you, do you think it's the person showing up to their board of supervisors meeting saying, I want to be able to protect my Second Amendment rights? Or is the image you get of the government showing up and violently coercing people, shutting down their church, shutting down their business, showing up to their home with printed out copies of things they've said on Facebook and questioning them and threatening them with incarceration? Which one of those things sounds more fascist right now? I know what sounds more fascist to me, and the fascinating thing is, it's coming from the left. It's not coming from the right. I don't know of many right-wing governments out there that are resorting to this sort of violence or government control. And it's not to say the right isn't capable of it. We're just not seeing it right now like we're seeing it from the left. And so... As we think about all of this, as we think about the sort of powers that we hand over to government, and this is not only a warning to people on the left about what it is they're currently willing to tolerate and actually thinking ahead to how that could potentially be used against them. This is also a warning to the right. Because I do have conservatives that are friends that when Republicans take control, they're like, okay, now it's our turn to start using the power of government to compel people to do what we want. No, it isn't. And we had better learn from this. Both sides had better learn from what we're seeing in Canada right now. And both of us had better start witness or recognizing the signs and the various things that politicians do in order to prep the environment to be able to carry out these sorts of actions. So as you're thinking about this, as you're talking about this with, with people that, you know, maybe you're not all that involved in politics. Here's one of the things I want you to think about and what, what I want you to do when you're using these as examples. One, don't engage in hyperbolic language yourself, right? Don't, don't automatically go to the, the worst possible thing, but ask questions. Ask questions like, why is this hyperbolic language being used? Because a lot of your friends are gonna be like, oh, that's just how politicians talk. And to some degree, that's true. But the thing that we all need to recognize is that governments don't get away with doing the things they're doing in Canada right now, or even certain places in the United States, unless the rhetoric has prepped the objective first. And so call out the rhetoric and avoid engaging in it yourself. The second thing that you need to ask them is, how comfortable are you with government having this kind of power? Do you see how it could potentially be abused? Is whatever you want the government to accomplish in a given moment so important that you're willing to hand over power to them, which we now have ample demonstration if the rest of history wasn't sufficient, that the same politicians that are saying that they desperately need this power in order to achieve some sort of necessary end will not also use that power to achieve a different end that you might not think is necessary, but the politician is willing to claim is necessary in order to get what they want, right? So this is the, the, the argument that you're making at that point is, is not just to point out that hyperbolic language is, is not conducive to you know, civil discourse. It's that hyperbolic language actually leads down a pathway where politicians are able to justify coercion and violence in a way that they would have never gotten away for previously. But provided that they have a crisis to work off of, you will be shot with the limits they will break on their own power in order to do it for the greater good. So those are two things that I want you to think about as you're discussing this with friends, with family, with coworkers, right? Again, don't engage in hyperbolic language, but point out that it's not just about, it's not just political speak. Sometimes those same politicians are saying what they're saying for a reason. And it's not just to win an election. It's so that when they, 
when they're about to do something that most people would absolutely oppose, they can now get away with it if they've convinced people that they're only going to execute it for their own good and it's only gonna happen at the expense of evil people that have it coming. I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. Thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.